you can turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18 and verse 21. Okay, why don't we stand and read Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and all that he had, and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, and released him, and forgave him his debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began pleading with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Please be seated. Stuart, were you able to hand out those sheets? Okay. Does everybody have a handout? You should have two pages each. Oh, okay. I'll wait. I won't start until it's done. No trouble, man. It's all good. Everyone's got two sheets? Okay, here's your temptation. You're going to want to tune me out for half an hour and read those. Put them down and listen to the Word of God. And then those sheets will speak volumes when the Word of God is completed. Well, as you will remember, back in September, we began a series titled Sermons from the Summer, a series that was birthed out of my different experiences I had over my vacation time with my family. And so we've covered topics like tattoos, clothing, suicide, and the, the role of music in bringing the presence of God. Now, as you can tell by our reading this morning, today's final sermon is going to be on forgiveness. On forgiveness. Now, this is such an important issue within the Christian community and Genesis House. Because the reality is, due to the fact that God wants us to live relationally with one another, and not in isolation, means that as, in, as we function in relationship, we are going to probably disappoint one another. We're probably going to hurt one another, even sin against one another. And that means that the likelihood of this is really high, and so therefore, when we come to the, the issue of forgiveness, we're going to be faced with the option to forgive our brother or sister or hold on to it. Now, some of you who've been in the church plant for 10 years have already been through this already. But if you, um, and even though we've, got, we've survived 10 years, 
by God's grace, uh, there's going to be more hurts and disappointments to probably come in the future. And so we're going to be on either one of two sides, if we haven't been already. You're going to find yourself the victim, the victim of being sinned against. And other times you might be the perpetrator, meaning you're the one to sin against another person. And so the Lord has a lot to say about this within the Christian community. Now, this came to a head in my family during the summer, the issue of forgiveness. One of my sons um, was in a relationship with someone at school and was hurt severely by his friend. I saw a change in him around the home. Instead of talking about his friend with pleasure and with uh, joy and with excitement about sharing experiences, it was full of bitterness and anger and only spoke about him and the hurt in a very sort of painful way. And I could see it affecting his demeanor, like instead of filled with laughter, filled with a solemnness and instead of uh, being joyous around the house, uh, being one to want to isolate and sort of hang out in his room and sort of be quiet and sort of withdrawn from the family. Now by God's grace, um, I was able to help him through it and saw amazing fruit and a complete change. So much so that the, rest, the, the friendship is restored and the, and the other fellow still doesn't know even that he necessarily hurt him. But the relationship was restored and they are now back into relationship and birthday parties and, and different school experiences and so on and so forth. And so I'm grateful to the Lord for his, his word because without his word, as a dad, I would have never told him to do that. I would have told him if I was a non-Christian, well, he deserves to be punished, and so you make sure you settle this score at school. Fifteen years ago, that would have been my message to my son. But thank God for his word. And so we're going to learn today that as a follower of Jesus, holding on to unforgiveness is not an option. Now I realize I read from verse 21, but the, verse, the context really starts in verse 15. So in verses 15 through 19, we find Jesus providing instruction to his disciples on what to do within the Christian community when one person sins against another. And Jesus lays out a three-step process. If you're unsure of the process, I would encourage you to study that in your own time, especially if you've been offended or you will be the offender one day. But as Jesus lays this all out, it's obvious from verse 21 that Peter's head, the wheels, started to spin as he listened to Jesus' instruction. And so he asked Jesus a question. In verse 21, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, Based on Jesus' teaching in 15 through 19, it's easy to follow Peter's logic. If Jesus was laying down a process by which to deal with sin in the church, then Peter wanted to know how often would he be expected to forgive someone who repeatedly sinned against them. So maybe like a one-off, sure, but how many times am I to forgive if that person keeps reoffending me? And so it's a really good question and follows the, the context well. And so Peter offers up this seven times. The seven times good Jesus. Now I, I want to suggest to you that Peter offered up seven, that he assumed 
he would be patted on the back with by Christ. Well done, Peter. Way to up the ante to seven times. I'm proud of you. Now, the reason why I believe that Peter probably offered seven times, and this is somewhat extra biblical, but also supported by scripture, it was that he believed because of the Jewish teaching in that day that the maximum a Jew had to forgive any person was three times. And this was rooted in Amos chapter one. Rooted in Amos chapter one. Now, this passage is about God forgiving uh, Israel's enemies. And you'll notice that God forgives the enemies three times. And so they believed that it was unnecessary to forgive any more than three times. And so let's read this together. For this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. And then he gives a reason for it. Uh, for three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent because, and he gives his reasons. For three sins of Tyre, and even for four, I will not relent. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, and so on. And so the idea here is this, is that because it was Jewish expectation that, that God could forgive up to three times, um, that the, the Jews were limited to that as well. And so when Peter offered up seven, he was trying to be noble. He was going above and beyond what was expected of a Jew, and he has assumed that Jesus would be proud. But look at how Jesus answered him in verse 22. He says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I could imagine that Peter's face dropped. I would love to have been a fly in the wall to just look at the instant expression of his face when he heard 70 times seven. Seven was noble, and now he's, Jesus is saying 70 times seven, 490 times. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't limiting it to 490. The number wasn't to be taken, lit, taken literally, as if Jesus was saying, well, if you keep score, and at the 491st, you're off the limits, and now you can hold on to unforgiveness. The parable is going to make that clear. What Jesus was trying to do was say to Peter, listen, buddy, it's infinite. It's infinite. It's way beyond what you have in your head. You forgive as much as required. You forgive as much as required. That is what's meant by 490. So to prove his point, Jesus tells a parable. So in verse 23, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. With the risk of stating the obvious, the first thing I want you to notice here is that it was the king and not the slaves who was in the position of authority. It's the king and not the slaves who had the authority. This is clear because when the king, quote unquote, wished to settle his accounts with his slaves, he began to settle them. In other words, the slaves had no say into the timing of the settling of the accounts. When the king jumped or said jump, they had to say how high. The king called them to account and they came. There was no option there. He was the one in authority and uh, there was nothing to be done by the slaves. So whether business had gone well or business had gone badly, when the king called, it was time to give an answer. And so he begins to interview them all, and it's going pretty well until he finds this one guy who owes him 10,000 talents. Now when we read this, this means nothing to us in our culture as we don't value our currency in Canadian talents. 
But if you lived in Israel 2,000 years ago, you knew exactly what this meant. Now I did some digging, and I've, I've come up with a couple different options through my studies, and I'm sure there might be more than one way to look at this, but this is uh, what we've found. That one talent, one talent equaled about 15 to 20 years of a, uh, a day laborer's wage. 15 to 20 years of a day laborer's wage, and that's one talent. So let's consider a day laborer today a hired hand. So you, you know, you go off and you're going to do some projects and you're the hired hand, you're the hired help. It would take you 15 to 20 years worth of daily work to make one talent in revenue. Another way of saying it is that for a hired hand to earn one talent of income, it would take you 15 to 20 years of labor. That's so 10,000 talents then is 150 to 200,000 years of work. Okay, so again, what's the point? The debt's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. It's unfathomable. It's, un, it's insurmountable. You'll never pay it back, ever. Option two, that still proves the same point, but it's to use today's currency. One talent in today's currency in U.S. dollars is $840,000. So that's over a million Canadian dollars. So um, 840 U.S. dollars times 10,000 talents is an unfathomable number that you can have a good time on your calculator with. It's one of those E, you know, it gives you that E9 or E10 numbers, it's kind of one of those. So again, it's just like, forget it, right? It's out, it's out, of, out of this world. So again, Jesus' point was, it's an unmeasurable debt. It's impossible to pay. And the king knew this was a slave's reality, and so he came up with a solution to try to recuperate at least some of the cost. So he didn't incur complete financial loss. And so look what the solution is in verse 25. In verse 25 he says, But since he did not have the means to repay, his lord the king commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. Just put yourself in the shoes of this guy for a second. Just think about the utter despair you'd be facing. The emotional shock on the king's announcement. You woke up in the morning. It was business as usual. You give your wife a kiss on the cheek out the door. You wish your, your kids a great day. And you tell them you look forward to coming back to a warm bed and a nice house and the family unit back together. Within hours, within hours of showing up to work, your world is completely turned upside down. The impact that you have had on your family has resulted in a complete devastation to the unit. Everything that you have known to be normal is completely gone. This is where the actions of the slave become so important. Look at verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. To put it bluntly, this is what the slave did. By humbling himself before the king and pleading for mercy, he was admitting that he was guilty. He was admitting by his position before the king that he was guilty. But in humility, he pleaded for the king's compassion and mercy. He banked on the character 
of the king. He hoped that the king would be merciful. And so let's look at the king's response. In verse 27, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now again, remember the nature of this debt. It's immeasurable, unpayable, but we learn a lot about the king's character. He had the full right to execute and exact justice, but he was willing to be completely merciful in response to the humility and the simple plea of a broken man's request. Forgiveness granted, not based on whether the slave deserved it, but based on the king's mercy. Now you can imagine the incredible relief that, that the family felt, and especially the slave who put his family in that position. The gratitude must have flowed from the inner depths of his being. And so you would expect as a, as a reader and a listener, especially Peter listening to Jesus, that this incident would have deeply shaped the slave's heart. One who, did, who had received mercy, no doubt it would have shaped him to the point that he would, in every situation he faced from there on in, when he, injustice was done to him, would only extend patience and grace and mercy to others. That's what you would expect. After someone who has an immeasurable debt, he would just absolutely be willing to extend grace to everyone who hurt him. And then modeling himself after the king. But here is where Jesus, as the master storyteller, takes an interesting twist in the parable. And read verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he received him and he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. In Bible studies, I often ask the question uh, to myself and sometimes to others, what surprises you most in the passage? When you're reading this portion of scripture, what surprises you the most? What stands out to you the most? And the reason that's a good question is because often in that lesson or in that observation, there's a teaching moment. Well, this is definitely the surprising part of the passage. Based on his own experience, that slave, again, you would expect the forgiveness of a hundred denarii worth of debt and the extension of mercy. But instead, there's no offer of forgiveness, just an incredible desire for justice. Justice that resorts to physical violence. He chokes them. And a justice that shows no patience. He demanded that everything be paid back immediately. And here's the crazy thing. A hundred denarii in Jewish culture one denarii was worth one day's wage. One day's wage. Total debt, just over three months of service. 150 to 200,000 years of debt. This guy had three months max of service. In an attempt to be shown mercy, the slave with 100 denarii worth of debt did the following. In 29, his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. And I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. What's incredible about this is that the responses between 
the one, the 10,000 talent debt slave and the 100 denarii debt slave was that their plea for mercy was identical. Look at this again in verse 26. So the slave fell before the ground, prostrated himself, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Look at 29. Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Word for word, the same plea for mercy. Again, Jesus is a master storyteller. So you would expect then, at the plea for mercy, he would extend forgiveness, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't. But unfortunately for that slave, his actions did not, did not go unnoticed. Everyone knew about it. Look at verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? When the king asked this question, it wasn't, of course, inquisitive, like he was trying to look for an answer. It was rhetorical. It was rhetorical. Of course he should have had mercy. Absolutely, 100%, yes. He should have been merciful considering he was the one who had been shown mercy. Offer forgiveness because you have been forgiven. But because the slave was not willing to forgive even the smallest debt, the king, the king deemed his actions in verse 32 as being wicked. Everyone knew it. The king knew it, and his fellow co-workers in verse 31, who brought it to the king's attention, knew it. They were deeply grieved. They were deeply grieved by his actions, but the slave with a 10,000 talent debt missed it. The result then is that the merciful king now moved to justice. Look at verse 34. And his lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. The grace once extended was now revoked and punishment was exacted. And so Jesus turns to Peter and says this, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Remember the context in which this whole parable was told. Peter begins by asking Jesus in verse 21, How often shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Expecting a pat on the back? And Jesus says, Peter, not only is forgiveness to be limitless as a follower of mine, it's necessary if you want to be forgiven by your Heavenly Father. You want to play this game, Peter? It's going to have eternal consequences for you. You will fall under the judgment of God. And so what are we to learn from these three, from this parable? We have three lessons this morning. First one, God is willing to forgive us for our sins, regardless of how immeasurable we deem them to be. 10,000 talents, an immeasurable debt. The only thing that's stopping the Lord from forgiving you is your willingness to repent. But nothing you've done 
cannot be forgiven by, the, by God. And nothing you can do in this lifetime, you can't punish yourself more in this lifetime for sins than what Jesus did in the cross. You can't outdo God in the punishment given. God is willing to forgive regardless of how immeasurable we deem it to be. The second lesson, as followers of Christ, we are to extend forgiveness to others since we have ourselves been forgiven. We are to give forgiveness to others and extend it because we ourselves have been forgiven. And uh, I think uh, Stuart gave this quote one time when he preached on this years ago. And um, he said, never are you more like God when you forgive and never are you less like God when you don't. Finally, in lesson three, if we do not forgive others who sin against us, neither will God forgive us for our own sin. It can't be any more clear than that in verse 35. But here's where I want to take a transition into a long application. You notice that Jesus says, Peter, I want you to forgive from your heart. In other words, Peter, there's a way to forgive that's not from your heart, and there's a way to forgive that's from your heart. There's a way to forgive in which you just merely give lip service. And listen, those of us who've got children, we see it all the time. You owe your brother an apology, you owe your sister an apology, okay, like, you know, and it's just kind of like this humdrum, like, because you made me type of thing, go through it. And you can tell their heart is not even close to being repentant for what they've done. All of us who've been parents know exactly what I'm talking about. Or even friendships. We know this in friendships, how that can look as well. So I want to speak to you about how to forgive from the heart. How to forgive from the heart. First of all, look at the sheet that I gave you called What Forgiveness Is and Isn't. What Forgiveness Is and Isn't. I'm not going to go through each one of these. You can do this on your own timing. You can do this on your own timing, but this is important because some of you might have these yeah but lists in your head. This will help you with the yeah but list to tell you what, is, what it is and what it isn't. So for example, just one. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. That's a cultural um, like miscommunication. Just forgive and forget. Uh, that's not what we do in the Christian community. You don't forget, but you just, you just um, forgive what you can remember. <laughs> Okay, but you can read through that sheet and you can look through that. But I'm not going to spend my, most of my time there. I'm going to spend my time somewhere else. Go to the second worksheet. I want to talk about three things you have to give up in order to forgive. If you can Number one, you will have to give up these three things. The fact that you may not have the opportunity to prove that you are right. That's your need to be loved and valued. You will need to for forgive or give up the fact that the other person may never pay for what they've done, which is your need for justice, and the fact that the other person may never know how much they hurt you, your need to be understood. These three things must be given up. And I've told this story many times, and I'll tell it just quickly, but... A man that I hated with all of my heart, that I used to wish he was dead, one day died. I one day got the phone call that he died. And uh, 
you know what? My need to be valued, my need for justice, and my need to be understood never left my heart, even though he was 10 feet under the ground. Every time I passed a, a Dodge blue truck on the road, my heart would trigger because it reminded me of him. Every time I'd run into his family or friends in the street, it would remind me of him. Every time I'd walk into the building he used to work in, it would remind me of him and I would trigger and go get angry. My, my neck would get tense and everything. I got my wish. He was gone from this world and he still controlled my life. I had to give up the need to be valued by him, the need for justice over him, and the need to be understood. Whether the person is dead or alive, unforgiveness will grip your life. So how do I know when forgiveness is complete? A great definition by one of my mentors, he, named, he said it this way, his name is Karsten. He said, when you can remember the past without pain, forgiveness has done its work of grace. Again, remember, we didn't say forgiveness is forgiving and forgetting. It's when you can remember the past without pain, forgiveness has done its work of grace. So the guy that died, that I wanted to die, if I can go back into his workspace, past Dodge Blue Trucks, run into his family and friends, and talk about the story without any um, sort of like bitterness in my life, and talking about the man with condemnation, forgiveness has done its work. If I can't go there without being absolutely gripped by emotion, it's not done its work. Two other points that um, I've experienced in my own life, um, is when you're when you uh, you'll know that you'll uh, be, be, have forgiven when you feel the need to be or sorry you'll know that you're unforgiving when you feel the need to be the other person's judge. So you have forgiven when you feel the need to stop being that person's judge. You look at that person with mercy as opposed to wanting to be their judge. And, and lastly, you'll speak about the person with hope and not condemnation. You can tell unforgiving people because they're always negative about certain people in their lives. But when they start speaking that, about that person as being someone that Christ died for, and that they have intrinsic value because they're a human being, and you start talking about them with hope that hopefully God one day will redeem them, you know, hopefully God will, will get a hold of their life and they'll be changed, then you know that you've moved into forgiveness. So now the practical part, how do I actually forgive? Again, really important as parents who are raising children, we often say you need to forgive one another, but we don't actually know necessarily how to teach them to do that. Remember, we're to forgive from the heart. This is just one way to do it. This is not the only way, this is one way. But this is a way that I've implemented in my own life, and I, I disciple others to do so, and how, I, how we do it in our own family, if the hurts are severe. Number one, you write down the incident or the incidents that hurt you on a cue card or a letter. Make sure to pull, pull up all the emotions that were buried in the hurt. It went down with emotion, so bring it up with emotion. Number two, begin by forgiving the person for the incident or incidents and the way it made you feel. This is important. It's not just about saying, I forgive him for lying to me. It's, I forgive him for lying to me, and because in the lies, my name was slandered amongst my friends, and it made me feel insignificant, and so on, and it, it resulted in a job loss, or whatever it could be. You bring up the incident and the associated feelings that gripped you and hurt you. 
So for example, you know, whatever the issue is, I, um, such and such, I forgive you for such and such and making me feel a certain way. You can choose to categorize all the list of offenses if you see patterns. So maybe there's 10 offenses about how you were verbally insulted, and so you've got them all listed as individual things, but then you can categorize them. I forgive you for being verbally abusive to me or so on. Okay? For part three, because at this stage you know you've been holding on to unforgiveness potentially, if this is, this is taking you a while to go through, you might have to ask the Lord to forgive you for un harboring unforgiveness. Again, if you deal with it immediately, you won't need to do part three. But if you've noticed now that you've been holding on to something for five or six or ten years, whatever that may be, you may want to ask the Lord to forgive you for this. And so I gave you just an idea of, of a prayer. When you're done the letter or the cue cards, in a ceremony, destroy it. Destroy it. Burn it. Throw it in the garbage. Consider it done. Only repeat the process if necessary if you can't remember the past without pain. Do it again, do it again, do it again, and pain will slowly subside over time. Again, this is just one way to do, uh, help each other out when it comes to dealing with unforgiveness. And I'm sure you may have ways yourself and uh, know great Christian teachers or read books on how they did it, but this is just <coughs> a simple if you need help.